Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on the hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey, we're on the hash. You're on the hash. Maybe you're watching us. Maybe you're listening to us on the Coindesk Podcast Network. That's also cool. Welcome. It's Wednesday. We got a lot to get to. All sorts of stuff happening here. I'm Zach Seward. We have Christy Harkin. We have Jensen Assey. And we have Will Foxley. He's leading us off today. Take it away, Will. I sure am. Leading off with a delay. Ethereum is now moving to proof of stake this June. It was expected to happen. Everything was lining up perfectly, but it's not going to happen. And now Bitcoin maximalists online are having a field day for once. Uh, so now they're going to move it probably to the fall. This also means that there's some other like tech debt is lining up for them. So they have to move something called the Ice Age, which is another contentious thing within Ethereum. This is not the story or the roadmap the Ethereum team wanted. I think there's the bigness or the hugeness or whatever word you want to use for this event is, is just like being seen in this timeline and all these delays. Like it's going to keep being delayed because of how much work goes into moving from proof of work to proof of stake. The analogy people use all the time is swapping airplane engines while you're in mid-flight. And it really is like that. You're swapping the underlying ticker that makes these networks chug along and they're having to kick it down the road yet again. Christy, I want to get your take on this. Were you surprised to see this from the reporting that you guys on the tech team have been doing uh, on Ethereum the last few months? Or is this pretty much expected? I'm going to say yes and no. Yes, I'm surprised because there's a lot of stuff that has been going right. There have been some test nets that have been going along swimmingly. There have been some forks that have been going along swimmingly. And everyone's like, yes, everything is, it's working every time we do something new in a test net, everything is chugging along. But then again, I'm not surprised because Ethereum, I mean, it's what they do. No matter how well things seem to be going, Ethereum is always pushing things. I don't know, is this what the third time they're going to have to move or fourth time that they're going to have to move the Ice Age? It happens. More than that. Now, Tim Biko is still saying that it's going to be this year. Don't worry, folks. It's going to be this year. It just is going to be in possibly the third quarter as opposed to the second quarter or the fourth quarter of the year. So, yeah, surprised, kind of, but not exactly. Zach, what are you saying on it? You got to get this stuff right. There's so much value that's locked on the Ethereum blockchain. We look at it as the second largest blockchain by market cap. That's the easy way to think of it. That's just for ETH, right? There's so many other Ethereum-based projects that are out there that need to make sure that this thing works. 
So the idea that this is being delayed for a couple more months, hey, no big deal. We've seen this delay before in terms of years. And despite sort of uh, chest thumping on Twitter from uh, you know opposing tribes, this thing has to be done right or else it's going to be potentially catastrophic for the Ethereum community. So for it to be pushed back a bit just to make sure that, again, that engine is being swapped in correctly makes sense. Seems like it's hard stuff. I'm no technical mind, but those who are technically minded are working on this problem and it's a tricky one. So I guess we'll give them some time. But yeah, delays are sort of the name of the game when it comes to ETH2. Jen, I'll toss it to you. I just want to clear up some confusion for new people to the space. I've been hearing a lot of people talk about this merge and talk about gas fees becoming lower. And that's actually not the case. There is a great article on Coindesk for anyone who wants to understand what this all means. And some of those usability problems that come with scaling are actually not going to be addressed in this update. And so I just wanted to just put that out there for people who think that gas fees are all of a sudden going to decrease or disappear. That is not what's going to happen. That happens with scalability and that takes a little more time. And so I would encourage everyone to go and read that article. I think it was published this morning on Coindesk. There were multiple writers. I don't remember who they were. So I am so sorry, but it is a good one. The one about scalability? That is this morning's, uh, it's actually from Valid Points newsletter that Will Foxley used to write for and is now, uh, Sam Kessler wrote it and you can subscribe to Valid Points and get it delivered right to your inbox every Wednesday. What a plug. What a lineage of writers (laughs) on that newsletter. All right, (laughs) let's change gears. This delay has happened. There may be more delays. So it goes. All right, next up, I think it's me. We're talking about Fireblocks, I believe. Hit me. Fireblocks and FIS are working to give a little bit more momentum behind this thing called Institutional DeFi. All right, this uh, this sort of seems like a small story, but I'm going to try to make it interesting. Yesterday, we saw BlackRock investing in Circle and also exploring applications for the USDC stablecoin. Now we're seeing Fireblocks, which is a big-time crypto custodian working with a big-time payments firm to potentially introduce some of these TradFi clients into the world of institutional DeFi, starting with Aave Arc, which is the KYC version of the DeFi lending giant. I don't know what's going on in the world of institutional DeFi, but it does seem like we're seeing more headlines these days that could suggest that, hey, maybe six months down the road, we see a big Wall Street titan actually doing some DGEN stuff in the wilds, well, the semi-wilds, because it's institutional DeFi and it's known, it's more KYC, less wild. But still, I think we're heading in that direction. And there's a couple of little data points in the last few days that suggest that behind the scenes, this is something that seems to be in demand and people are working toward, both on the crypto native side to provide these services to the TradFi giants and the TradFi giants saying, hey, okay, there's no yield in the other markets. Let's see if we can get into DeFi and make it work for us. I want to start with institutional DeFi using this Fireblocks and FIS tie-up as a way in. I'm going to toss it to Will who is nodding vigorously. Will, let's hear it. Just wasn't surprising for you to pick this story this morning. It's like probably the most boring-ish headline on Coindesk, but also has right. huge implications, which is like perfectly a Zach Seward story. Uh, you, you really do find the needles there. In terms of like what's happening with institutional DeFi, it does matter because a lot of these institutions are getting to DeFi. Uh, it's mostly happening on the crypto native side first. So you have like these merchant banks, or these OTC desks, or these trading firms, and they want to use KYC platforms, those things don't exist. Well, they're being built right now. And sometimes they do exist, but they're proprietary behind these walled gardens. People don't know about them. People want to trade these coins, these altcoins, these DGEN coins, 
and they're working at an institution, they want to get access to leverage, they want to get access to token farming, they want to get access to atopic swaps, all, all the flash loans, all those sort of things. But they can't because of the KYC process and they'll get sued really quickly or they'll get tied up in court or whatever the case may be. They want to have KYC access to these products. Well, that's what you're seeing here with this Fireblocks thing. And this can go a lot of different directions. So Zach's nose is like completely correct here. Think of all these coins and why are they being KYC'd and how are they being KYC'd? Well, what's going on in the background is you're having these blockchain explorers and these blockchain analytics teams looking at these tokens that are being traded on DeFi and saying like, where did that token exist beforehand? Whose wallet was it in? Has it been through a mixer? Has it been tainted by like a bad source of some sort? And those coins are being pushed away and they're bringing better coins to the market that institutions can interact with. Uh, so that's the essence of KYC and that's why it matters is you're really starting to see this privacy aspect in the market actually starting to matter. Uh, they're building projects, proprietary projects right now that are going to separate the DeFi tokens that have a bad history and the DeFi tokens that have a good history. People are going to have access to one or the other depending on where you are at in the market. Jen, I want to throw the story up over to you though. Yeah, I just want to say, you know, those bank reports that we make fun of all the time. I think that while the stats are often questionable, it's those reports that are in part driving partnerships like this. And so I just want to eat my words a little bit. You know, I think those are the reports that drive this institutional adoption, especially when we talk about mainstream institutional adoption. It's what kind of triggers these institutions to think about the products. And so I can finally see their place even though sometimes they don't make a lot of sense. Well, we're going to wait for the God give me the confidence of a Wall Street analyst looking at crypto for the first time, Will Bit. <laughs> we gave you a shout out, Will, for that bit. I forget who it was the other day. You weren't here, but we gave the bit a shout out. Anyway, another data point here I think that's super important is uh, MetaMask Institutional made some news this morning. They said, hey, we're partnering with a bunch of different custodians. We're going to make it so that, again, this compliant DeFi, this compliant interaction with on-chain activity can happen for DAOs and organizations the world over. So again, I think there is this momentum ramping up behind the scenes and it is that boring. It's the unsexy stuff, Will. It's the unsexy stuff that tends to be rather important in this space. And I think custodians have long been misunderstood as these boring, unsexy things that hold the coins. They make all this stuff possible. And Fireblocks and more are certainly out there as sort of foundational pillars of the crypto ecosystem, especially when it comes to onboarding big institutions into the space. So interesting to see this, interesting to see MetaMask Institutional fighting for this, the same slice of the pie. It's going to be wild to see who ultimately becomes, again, that gateway to, uh, to institutional DeFi. Christy, final thoughts. Very last quick thing. I thought that the quote at the end of the article was what was super interesting to me about the appetite of traditional clients to control their own wallet technology and get exposure to different types of these assets will grow over time. And I think it's the ability to control their own wallet technology that is interesting to me in this story, that they're not just nibbling at the edges and letting other people do it for them, but they want to be actively participating and getting more than just their toes wet in the water. They want to go like striding right in and being in control. And that I thought was a really cool point. But that's it. I'm ready to move on now, Zach. <laughs> As am I. To Will's disdain, we are going to Argentina to talk about some mining. All right. Argentinian town Soradino will invest in crypto mining to fight inflation and upgrade infrastructure. So about 6,000 people live in this town. 
they want to mine crypto and they say that they are going to sell that crypto immediately to avoid price volatility. Now, the mayor reportedly doesn't see any risk in crypto mining if it can be sold immediately. And the money is going to be used to upgrade their railroad infrastructure. So for me, I think this story just shows the desperate state in Argentina right now. But Will, I'm going to pass it to you. This is a mining story. You are our mining expert. What is your hot take? Okay, well, let's back up for a second. I think that it is important to talk about the effects of inflation in different countries. Obviously, yesterday we had that 8.5% number come out in the United States, but it's much higher in different countries, especially countries like Argentina, which have a history of defaulting on their debts and then also inflating their currency away. Uh, they've moved past their currency like twice now in the last 30 years or so, where they've had to like reset it and work with the IMF to. Uh, rebuild their currency. And small towns like this are the ones that are hit the most. Uh, industrialization has moved away from the area. Uh, these small towns don't have a lot of jobs uh, and there's not much to do. So on that side story, it's important to note that crypto is making inroads into these communities and that mining can play a part in uh, bringing jobs back to those areas. That's something that's happening a lot in the Midwest, the United States, in the Rust Belt. A lot of mining is moving to those areas. Uh, West Texas is another great example of that. For this story, though, this doesn't lead to much right now. So they have six GPUs and they're going to buy one ASIC later, which like looking at the math, they're making about like $50 to $100 a day, maybe. And that's not even like counting electrical costs. So there's not like a lot of meat to this story is like my biggest concern with it. And they're definitely not going to be able to pay for a railroad with that meager amount of money that they're trying to build with it. Like maybe something in the future happens with it. That would be cool. But not to pour some water on your topic. There, Jen. Apologize. No, that's okay. You do it often. Chrissy. I'm used to it. Chrissy, let's get your take on the story, though. I'm just wondering if even the ROI on the equipment is going to pan out if they're looking at buying ASICs down the road. I mean, buying a miner, buying if they're looking at a Bitcoin miner, it's going to be a while before they even make that investment back. Never mind use the profits to build a railroad. <laughs> so I think, though, that. If you're also looking at the price in U.S. dollars and where that can take them, the 300 U.S. dollars, $50 a day or whatever U.S. is actually a lot, I think, down there So in Argentina. So maybe the dollar will stretch a little farther, but I kind of second your, your skepticism. And at the same time, I think, as Jen says, it points to desperation. Where else are they going to get the money at this point? And how else are they going to get it? And why not maybe maybe get a few people running some play to earn centers and they can make more money that way too and just throw everything at it. This may just be one piece of the pie for them in terms of raising funds in unconventional ways. So more power to them. Zach, did you have anything to add? I just want to say that Jen was really burying the lead that it's 6,000 robotic ants who live in this Argentinian city. <laughs> I think if we looked at that image of who was pictured out, yeah. there, that to me, that's the headline. Robotic <laughs> ants are living in this community and they're mining stuff. Mm -hmm. So just think about that for next time. All right, Jen. But anyway, I saw your hand up, so I'm going to let you have actual smart comments. Well, they're not that smart. I'm just going to add a few stats from the article. So the mayor did say that they plan on making a few hundred U.S. dollars each month. And I guess that points to how much money they are currently generating for their rail. It sounds like they're in a really desperate situation. If we look at inflation in Argentina, it's at 52.5 percent 
And to try and address that, the government has agreed on an economic plan as part of a $45 billion deal with the IMF that is supposed to target inflation. And so I just hope that in towns like this who are in desperate need that they do adopt some crypto solutions and maybe they can start to not depend on the IMF and their governments when they have so systemically failed them. And so I don't know. I I hope that some good comes from this. Control, can we get the ants back on the screen? Can we get the ants back on the screen? Watch over here. Christy, Christy, please save me. Take it away. (laughs) Yes, I'll save you, Zach. So I wanted to talk about the halving and where we are in the market and whether or not we're actually going to see the typical four-year cycle Bitcoin's halving. So if you don't know, the halving is something that's built into Bitcoin's code. Roughly every four years, the Bitcoin subsidy is cut in half. Right now, every mined block releases 6.25 Bitcoins as part of the reward that miners get for adding that block to the blockchain. So the last time that happened was in 2020. We're now halfway to the next halving event in 2024. And typically what we see in terms of the market is a two-year recovery rally ahead of the event, followed by a year-long meteoric run and a 12-month bear market. And that bear market is supposed to hit way harder than what we're seeing right now. If the past is a guide, 2021 was supposed to be the bullish year like 2017 was. And then the bears are to control price action this year, paving the way for a recovery rally next year and the bull run of 2024. But it's just not happening the way that it typically does. We're not seeing the same market reaction. For one thing, miners aren't creating the same sell pressure that they have in the past because there are alternative forms of financing now available to them. So they don't have to sell off their coins en masse to keep themselves going. And so we're not seeing that humongous, like, boom, down to a $1,000 drop that we had last time. Also, big institutional investors are here and they're not scared off. Uh, So as Avi Feldman from Golden Tree Asset Management said, today I'm seeing really smart people getting involved despite the bear run. To me, I don't feel like we're ever going to see that four-year cycle again. And that doesn't mean this is a bad thing. It means in a way that Bitcoin is maturing and we're not going to get the kind of massive swings and volatility that we have in the past. So I thought that was kind of cool. Uh, anybody want in on that? I was going to do quick and then I want to throw a wheel. I just, I love when we talk about like Bitcoin as it, as it having its own physics, right? Having its own laws of physics that like <laughs> replicate yeah. itself in, in, in actual cycles. And we've seen this happen time and time again, just like the innate physics native to Bitcoin. They do seem to play out over and over again. But again, this is an entirely different environment uh, relating to Bitcoin adoption and by whom than when we saw the last cycle, right? And I think, you know, Christy, to your point, uh, or to the point that was voiced by the analyst, right? It's like sort of a different constituency that is participating in this market now. It's why we see Bitcoin so correlated to NASDAQ in these last few months. It's why sort of, again, these physics, these internal physics may not play out with this next cycle. So anyway, I just, I am fascinated by sort of the, the mysticism of like Bitcoin bear bull cycles, because sometimes they do really seem to pan out. And at other times, it's like, why would it pan out? Things are different now, very different now than what it was last time around. So anyway, I'm going to toss it to Will, though, because I'm curious for his thoughts. I want to get everyone's thoughts on this. Is the happening priced in? That's always like the the question that's at the heart of all this. And that was the big thing in 2020 when the last happening happened. And for listeners, that's when Bitcoin's issued supply cuts in half. It's like the daily amount that's rewarded in the Coinbase from Bitcoin miners. And last time that happened was 2020. 
next one's supposed to happen in 2024. And people always argue that the halvening causes prices to increase because there's a lack of supply in the market. So I want to go around. Zach, what do you think? Is it is it priced in? I think it's priced in. Yeah, I think it's priced in. I mean, we know it. It's at a set schedule, right? Why wouldn't it be priced in? Okay. I don't know. Christy, you? Pass it to you. I think that we are going to see less of the priced in narrative after this halvening because I think that um, everything has changed. The landscape has changed and people aren't going to know where it's going to go. And I think that we're going to mostly be relying on some market factors like who's buying, who's not. But I think it's going to rely on hopium a lot more than anything else. People, the anticipation of it happening is what prices itself. It's almost like a self self-fulfilling uh, prophecy. So I think that after this, if the cycle breaks the way that it seems to be breaking right now, I, I think everything's up for grabs. Jen, what's yours? I honestly didn't have an opinion. Uh, and I, after hearing Zach's and yours, Christie's, yours was more convincing. So I'm going, I'm oh. going with you. Girl, <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was way better than mine, like hands down. So. Will, we got to get Will on the record here. Will is the having mm. priced in. I don't know at this point, it's too far away, but I think last time it was priced in. I think it, the market always prices these things in. I don't think it causes these huge supply jumps or these huge price pumps. I think it's just like market demand for the product and supply hits at the same time. So that's my take on it. It is interesting, though, and there will definitely be a lot of flame wars on Twitter as this date gets closer. It's still two years away, but it'll, it'll happen. It's going to be fun. The last two years have gone that. pretty darn fast. That's, yeah, time flies. Time flies. They're, crypto years, they're long. All right. Anyway, we're going we're gonna to leave it there. We're going to have the laws of crypto physics at some point. It will be the, the <laughs> uh, dissertation of the hash team. It's going to be a fantastic exploration. We'll have some laws of physics for you at some point. In the future, that is. As for now, we're wrapping this thing. I want to give a shout out to our new podcast. You can listen to us on The Hash anytime, anywhere, on the go, on your phone. It's The Hash for your ears. Check it out wherever you get your podcast. It's on the Coindesk Podcast Network. All right, that's it for today. I'm Zach. There's Christy. Jen's here. That's Will. We'll be back. Have a great day. See you. Bye-bye. See ya. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.